0: Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah! Today we hit a bit of a mile marker. Show number 1,500. Holy cow, I've talked to a lot of people. Here we go.
1: Time here is limited, and that's really been a guiding force in my life in terms of what I've chosen to do. (laughs)
0: I'm pretty revved up today because it's show number 1500, which means I've talked to an awful lot of people. And today I'm talking with Paul Dorleon. He's calling in from San Francisco, California, beautiful city where my son lives. Paul Dorleon is a globally recognized expert on the history of motorcycles and motorcycle cultures. His website, The TheVintageInt, yep, TheVintageInt.com, has been the gold standard for motorcycle riding since 2006. Paul's authored several books, including his most recent book, which we'll be talking about today, A Ton Up, A Century of Cafe Racer Speed and Style, published by my good friends at Motorbooks. Other titles include Custom Revolution, The Chopper, The Real Story, takes me back to my youth, The Cafe Racers, and many others. He's a columnist for Cycle World and Classic Bike Guide, and contributes monthly to magazines around the world, bringing his unique viewpoint. To the contemporary motorcycle scene. Paul is also an artist, a photographer who has spent 25 years as a professional muralist and decorative painter, and his art has been used on many album covers by many musicians. A man of many trades. We'll be back in a minute to talk to Paul, but first a word from our sponsors that make Cars Yeah! possible. Hey Cars Yeah! I'm a huge fan of Covercraft. I've protected my vehicles with their products for decades. Their seat gloves are semi-custom fit for cars and trucks, and their seat savers, a favorite of mine, are custom tailored to fit your seats like a glove. Work truck seat covers are tough, durable, denim-weight fabric. It's like putting a pair of rugged jeans on your truck's seats. Want to stay warm? Covercraft also offers seat heaters. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark, a Cars Yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. Are you a Carjah yeah subscriber? If you're not, go to carjah.com, click on the free book button, and I'll send you my free filler up book. It's a very cool book I created of fuel filler fun, some very cool imagery, and great quotes from past guests here on Carjah. Yeah. Plus, you'll get my weekly email follow up and my weekly blog. Just go to carjah.com, click on the free book button, and I'll send it to you right away. Thanks for subscribing. Hey, Paul. Welcome to the 1500th episode of Cars. Yeah, I've hit quite a mile marker here. Are you buckled up? Or actually, let me rephrase what I usually say. Do you have your helmet on, your gloves and boots, and are we ready for
1: a fun ride? I've got all the gear all the time. I'm ready to go. There
0: you go. Absolutely. We'll be safe. Don't throw me off the back of the bike, though. that's all I ask. Before we jump into the questions here, tell our listeners just a little bit about this very eclectic Unique life that you've had because you delve into a lot of different things, don't you?
1: <laughs> yes. I've always uh, forged my own path. Uh, basically, I've only ever had one job in my life when I was a teenager and uh, kind of went on my own from there as an artist, you know, learning how to m- do decorative painting and murals. And about 14 years ago, I started a blog, much like you started a podcast. You know, I didn't really know what it was at first, and then it became a thing. And in 2006, nobody was really doing a blog about um, old motorcycles. Uh, hardly any blogs about motorcycles, but there were some. But I was kind of the first to do, let's say, an authoritative and researched blog, The Vintage ent, about motorcycle culture. And it's it's really evolved over the years to embrace kind of contemporary motorcycle culture and custom motorcycle culture. And I got commissioned by uh, the German publisher, Gestalten, to research the history of the chopper because no one had ever actually done that in any serious way. So that became my chopper book. So I've sort of covered, oh, and and more recently in the last five years, I've been covering electric motorcycles and uh, did another book with Gestalten called The Current, which was based on a web vertical on my website that follows the electric motorcycle scene. So I've kind of become much more of a generalist than I ever thought. You know, coming coming from the vintage world, you know, one doesn't expect to be talking about electric or custom or choppers. or Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so,
0: you know, although it's interesting because I've had some guests on the show here who, uh, Z-Electric is one, David Bernardo, who takes old vintage Volkswagens and he's done a couple Porsches as well and puts electric motors in the back of them
1: i've seen them yeah i saw uh some of them with the quail last yes, year
0: exactly that's david and it's really fascinating um and jaguar had you saw, probably saw that xke they had oh, yes. where they put the electric in which so many people thought was blasphemy but i thought it was kind of a cool deal because whether you like it or not electric's here it's coming on fast and i think it's here to stay so You know, it's fun what you've done. Uh, I rode bikes way back when uh, when I was a kid. A lot of dirt bikes down living in Southern California, going to Mexico, riding up and down beaches and sand dunes and stuff. And I got back into them for a short time uh, living up here in the Pacific Northwest. Every time I talk to somebody about bikes, I get a little nostalgic and go, "Ah, why did I stop riding? But, um, you know, life gets in the way and so forth. We're going to learn more about you, about this new book, Ton Up which is cool. I love Vintage Cafe Racer so I'm really excited to have you on the show today. But another quick question for you. Paul, what's one little thing that most people don't know about you?
1: <laughs> well, the fact that I'm an artist uh that I started out as a painter. Yeah. Unless they've known me for a long time and knew that that was my career, mm-hmm. uh the people in the motorcycle world don't know that I started out that way and and had kind of an epiphany in college actually. I was not an artist as a student in in public school, but when I went to college at UCSC, I was a biophysics major. <laughs> oh my gosh! Wow. Well, there's <laughs> I, a switch. I, I'm re- I, yeah, I'm really good at maths and science, and uh, so was fully uh, committed to a path. Kind of uh, Santa Cruz has a program called the History of Consciousness, and I was interested in a scientific study of consciousness. And my second semester in, I uh, took an art class just kind of to blow off steam. And I had an epiphany and realized, oh, my God, I'm an artist uh, <laughs> as well as a scientist or an artist with a scientific brain and uh, kind of never turned back. I uh, I took a lot of design and environmental studies and environmental design and wow. art, art history and architectural history classes yeah. and all that research that I did has served me in good stead in, in my career as a as an interior designer and decorative painter and later as a rider in the motoring industry. You know, I think the more you bring to whatever subject you're covering, the the more interesting you are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well there's a great metaphor for the twists and turns of riding motorcycles. My gosh, that's a huge twist. When you think about it, you think of uh people in one part of the the campus, all of you smart guys. And then the artist, the crazy artist on the other end, and I studied graphic design advertising and business, so I'd kind of switch from one end of the campus to the other and going back and forth and they were such different people. the fact that you you take took that turn, I think is absolutely fascinating, and that you found your creativity uh in a really unique way, so that's pretty cool well let's uh let's start with a success quote or a mantra, some kind of saying that's an instrumental in your life that has helped you form your success over time. So grab the handlebars and twist the wrist.
1: (laughs) Well, I think it could be phrased many ways. I don't have a a mantra painted up on my desk, but uh, I think you only live once or seize the day. When I was 15, I learned how to meditate. And I'm not a proselytizer or anything, but I did it for my own kind of mental health and peace of mind uh, coming out of the growing up in a turbulent family in the 1960s, a very turbulent age in California.
0: When you were in San Francisco, too, where things were really turbulent in the 60s.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And a lot of families, uh, you know, experienced that period in different ways. And uh, mine was quite chaotic. And so I looked for uh, peace and solace. But I also became really interested in the, let's say, a Buddhist or, or Hindu take on death. And uh, really the understanding that, our time here is limited. And that's really been a guiding force in my life in terms of what I've chosen to do, what I've chosen to follow. I've, uh, would never be content working at a job, if you know what I mean. And and <laughs> yeah, so I've always yeah. just figured out a way to make my own living and do what interested me. So that has really been a guiding light. And I painted in about 1984, I painted on the back of my leather jacket a, uh, a logo that's still there. It's a it's a skull and profile with a it has a mohawk of tarot cards, <laughs> and uh, you know it's oh my gosh yeah being a uh, you know the typical skull and crossbones insignia for for motorcyclists is mm-hmm. kind of it's like a shield to protect prevent you from investigating the invol the vulnerability of an individual, right? It's like, keep away. But in my case, it's more just a memento mori. It's like, you know, keep focused on, on who's important to you and what's important to you and and do what you think is, is, you know, your, your purpose in this world.
0: You know, this is wonderful, Paul. And the reason is you're, you're giving me some reminders, really nice reminders. My father, I lost him about three years ago. He was a, he was an artist, an architect, his, his career, and he kind of followed later in life that career. He found meditation, he did a lot of yoga, um, and uh, kind of the Buddhist sense of life and how to think about life and death, and had a, it had a very calming effect on him and his life, and I could see the changes for the positive in many ways, Um, because as we all know, those of us who have our own businesses, there can be some strife and challenges once in a while, right? I'm just like, okay, what's <laughs> going to happen next week? Uh, although I think for most people who think they they have a very secure job working for other people, what they don't know is there's really no security in it at all. Uh, Nor
1: in any aspect of life. <laughs> yeah,
0: it could change very Health quickly.
1: Relationship. Yeah, everything.
0: Home. Yeah, everything. But I think that's a great way to go through life. Let's talk a little bit about this new book, because that's what pulled Paul and I together. Uh, my friends at Motorbooks, they send me these wonderful books and they uh, say, hey, would you like to have these great authors on your show? And, and this one really caught my eye. I love the graphics on the, the cover, the Cafe Racer, Ton Up. So tell us about this book, what inspired you to write it, what it means, and tell me about the title, Ton Up.
1: <laughs> yeah, Ton Up is an old uh, British expression. I mean, it we start at the point where it means to go 100 miles per hour. So the ton is 100, uh, even though it's 2000 and weights. But in England, uh, Previous to that, uh, to do to earn a ton or to achieve a ton meant a 100 of something in British slang. So I think that's how it evolved into uh, being a, a notation for 100 miles per hour. And so the phrase ton up has really come to signify a daredevilry and became associated. It's a bit archaic now. I don't think too many people use the phrase, but in the 1950s and 60s, it was really associated with cafe racer culture. When I first discovered uh, motorcycles beyond, let's say, just a utilitarian uh, device, I learned to ride at 15 so I could take night classes in high school uh, to graduate a year early because I hated high school (laughs) Uh, and uh, discovered that if I took certain classes at the local community college, I could graduate a year early. So. I've been forever grateful to motorcycles for getting me out of high school, but <laughs> I didn't really embrace them as let's say a lifestyle or a passion until after college and um a friend I had a printing press uh actually in the basement, and I had a friend who was a journeyman printer who taught me how to use it, and he was a motorcyclist he loved vintage bikes, his name's Jim Gilman he's still around, yeah. and he had an old b m w that he let me try and I just became entranced with with motorcycles, and he handed me a stack, a milk crate full of classic bike magazine. And at that point, classic bike was only about four years old, so it, the the whole run would fit fit in a milk crate. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's you know it's been running for forty years, so around yeah, uh, forever. And I have every issue from number one. But um, that became a real education, you know. I just poured over the whole run, and just my eyes were open, and I became fascinated. Especially with cafe racer culture, the fashion the motorcycles I loved British bikes. I soon bought a Norton Atlas and bought a leather jacket and painted <laughs> up the back as i mentioned and uh and thus began my evolution. you know I started collecting motorcycles and repairing them, buying them, selling them uh pursuing them as a as a, not so much as a collector but as a an intrigued. An investigator, let's say. If I was interested in a motorcycle because of what what I'd read, I would find one and buy it. They were cheap in the 80s and even in the 90s and would try them out. And if I really liked it, I kept it. If I didn't, I would sell it. And I ran through about 200, a little over 200 motorcycles in a stretch stretch of 20 odd years and uh, really got a sense of. You know, every industry, you know, American, British, German, Italian, Japanese, because I tried bikes from all of them and sort of really got a feel for the industry and started to collect. There was no Internet then. So to learn about these bikes beyond magazines, I started to collect books and amassed thousands of titles on motorcycles to learn the history and the development and the culture behind. And that's really you know, at a certain point, people started to realize I kind of knew what I was talking about, and I got invited to be a judge at concours like the Legend of the Motorcycle Concourse in Half Moon Bay in 2006, 7, eight. And now I'm a judge at the Villa d'Este Concourse at, on Lake Como. And wow. That's kind of, it's a bit of the backstory. Yeah, where-
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's fascinating. So I guess I could say you win in a ton percent. Ha uh. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Uh, <laughs> So I think it's great. You know, what's really fun about this book as I went through it. There's some marvelous photos. And, and when you talk about the culture of the cafe racer culture, it's so much that. I mean, it was kind of wild boys, and it's kind of like the hot rod culture was here in the, the 40s uh, and even 50s here in the United States of these uh, people that wanted to kind of customize stuff and go out there and be a little different and Sometimes be a little bit of a rabble rouser, I guess, is a little bit of a way to say it. So.
1: There's a lot of history I found, actually. I mean, the book starts in 1896 with the eventual uh, invention of the pedal cycle. Uh, uh, Pierre Michaud in France invented the pedal cycle and uh, – Pierre Lalmont came to the U.S., who was one of his assistants and also patented the pedal cycle here, which led to a lot of controversy. But I start with a quote from 1869 from one of the original pedal cyclists talking about the thrill of going 40 miles an hour downhill, (laughs) which was something no one had ever done before. And I said, well, there, you know, clearly this impulse is universal and old, that's kind of the uh the thread that I follow from eighteen ninety six and I even talk about horse riding clubs in the Victorian era, you know where they would learn cockney slang and even though these guys were wealthy, you know they would some of them would even knock out a tooth or two to look more authentic, oh my you know? gosh <laughs> <laughs> so the, the notion of fashion and ritual and you know a kind of a club of people who uh-huh. like to go fast, yeah is very very old. Yeah. And that's that's really what the book is about. It's like I start with photographs from the ni- early 1900s of people who were clearly anyone today would identify as that's a cafe racer pose, you know, crouched down on the bike, out cheating the wind. I've been collecting these photographs for decades and so I have never before published pictures from the 1900s to the present, including my own journey Helping to build a version of the Ace Café here in San Francisco in the mid-80s, you know, while the Ace Café in London was still a tire shop.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Before it was revived. And my own sort of Café Racer experience and my friends and friends that I've made in the 2000s who were Café Racer enthusiasts at the same time in Britain and in France, who I didn't even know, were doing exactly the same thing, buying old British bikes and you know, kind of dressing as rockers around the world in the 1980s. This fascinating journey. Oh, you it know, is. These yeah. Things that come up in culture and are repeated around the world without people knowing it.
0: Yeah, it's really, really cool. I, for you listeners out there, if you have any kind of fun with bikes or love bikes, this is a really cool bike uh, book. And I think what's neat about it is going back to the history and understanding where all of this came from and the kind of people and the characters makes it really fun. So I'll make sure I put links on how you can get a copy of this book on Paul's show notes page here on car Show, We're going to take a short break, thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. So hold on. My favorite collector car magazine is Keith Martin's Sports Car Market. I've been a subscriber for decades. Sports Car Market is the Wall Street Journal for the enthusiast and the collector. It's your monthly must-read whether you dream of owning a collector car, have two cars, or 200. Sports Car Market has been around for 31 years, and it's filled with valuable articles, intelligent write-ups, and the latest auction sales. Go to sportscarmarket.com and subscribe today. Plus, you'll get the exclusive SCM guide to restoration shops included for free. At checkout, use the code CARSYEAH and receive a 50% discount on your digital subscription. It's an exclusive offer from me here at Cars Yeah. I'm Mark Green, and I love Sports Car Market Magazine. Are you looking for a way to get your products or services into the ears of thousands of automotive enthusiasts around the globe, I can help. This is Mark Green here at Cars Yeah, and I'd be honored to be an influencer and ambassador for your brand in a unique and personal way. Five days a week, thousands of subscribers and listeners enjoy the Cars Yeah podcast and website. Contact me today and I'll show you how at mark at com or connect with me through the Cars Yeah website at carsyeah.com. and a classic Mini Cooper on the back. The book's available at Amazon for just $10, and this book will dramatically improve the direction of your financial future. I gave copies to each of my children. All securities are through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Christopher Kimball Financial Services is not affiliated with Money Concepts Capital Corp. Get your copy, The Saga of Ike and Penny, today. All right, we're back. We've just pulled up on our cafe racers. We're going to jump off here and continue with the talk. Paul, what I want to do now is take a look at some of the many roads you've been down and talk about a big challenge or a big failure. Could be from a business standpoint, could be from a life standpoint. Wherever you want to take us down this journey is up to you. But the question or the main point of this is more, what did it teach you so you could come out positively on the other end? So take us for a
1: ride. Oh, there have been many challenges along the way, I assure you. Probably the most significant came in 2009. Uh, I'd been doing my blog for about three years, and it was fairly popular, and I started to be invited to write for Cycle World and Mm -hmm. other magazines around the world. And it became apparent that there was potentially a new career here, which I'd never considered. In 2009, I had a fairly disastrous uh, breakup. I got divorced, and it wasn't a happy situation you know, sometimes you really find out what you're made of when you go through such a a traumatic situation. And I chose to, it coincided with my daughter going off to college. Well, not to mention
0: 2009, we had a financial (laughs) meltdown. Oh,
1: I had had purchased a couple of houses that I was, you know, renovating and flipping and wasn't able to get construction loans. So I had to finance all that myself as my business dropped about 60%. 60%. Sure, and, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it all hit scary, you at once. It all hit at once. It was a great wave. And when I managed to clear my uh, self out of that morass through the great help of my best friend, who's a, a genius realtor, his name's Bill Charman. He's also in my ton up book, as we've been Cafe Racer buddies for years. I moved to Paris for uh, about a year and a half. Oh, my gosh. Uh, wow. Mostly, Another big change. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, mostly because I needed to reinvent myself and Mm -hmm. I needed to, it was. Even though my business was down, it was fairly easy for me to accept a phone call and say, yeah, I'll work on this. And I decided I really wanted to switch careers. And the only way I could do that 100% was to make it impossible to work in my own career, which meant leaving the country.
0: Yeah. Wow. So, What a transition.
1: Yeah. And I didn't speak French. I still don't speak French well, but uh, I had enough context there from – Doing international motorcycle shows and riding and things that uh, I had some work there, mostly riding in English for French companies.
0: Well, and, and with the last name Delaron, you could fit in somewhat, huh? It opened some doors. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's how I managed to turn a uh, a really tough situation that everybody was going through. I mean, yeah. I had my particular spin on it, but it was a, it was a tough ride if you had a business.
0: Well, And with all those personal issues combined on top of it, I mean, I can't imagine everything coming from all directions. Um, But, you know, I really commend you for what you did in this sense of, you know what, I'm going to go somewhere else and reinvent myself. That's my takeaway from that story that you just shared is a decision to reinvent yourself and change. That's a brave, bold step, my friend. I mean, wow.
1: Yeah, there was a no safety net. <laughs> no. No, I don't have no. a trust fund. <laughs> no, most so. of
0: us don't. No, we got to do it all on our own. I I think it's fantastic and you know it's it's almost something that maybe everybody should try once in their life. And, and you know, build yourself a a runway, uh, put a little a few coins away in the bank so that, you know, but maybe try that because you said at the beginning of our talk here life is is short and we got to make the best of the time that we have here and as, as I I've gotten older, you start to realize that, you know, there's limited time and start to see friends of mine pass away or acquaintances and you go, wow, you know, am I doing everything I want? Nobody wants to end up in that last breath of bed going, "When I wish I would have. So let me ask you this, from all of that turmoil, you made this bold step and change. If you could narrow down all of that to one great result. What would it be? What was the big result of learning lesson from taking such massive steps
1: uh yeah, forcing myself to concentrate on writing, especially is what opened the most doors uh it became a it did become a new career because as I became a better writer, I was invited to write books that sort of become my you know that that gained a lot of uh, respectability. Let's say people, you know, as much as everybody looks at the internet, people still give a lot more weight to books. And uh, if a publisher is has enough faith in your credibility to spend tens of thousands of dollars publishing a book with your name on it, that means something to people. So. It took a few years. I didn't write my first book until 2013, which was also with Motorbooks. And it was also about Cafe Racers. And it was called Cafe Racers. And it was based on an exhibition I did with uh, the photographer Michael Lichter and Sturgis. So, yeah, the net result of all that process was uh, it di- it worked in terms of making me a good enough writer that people uh, wanted to pay me for my skills.
0: There you go. Well, I'll remind our listeners again a century of cafe eraser speed and style, ton up, T O N, ton up. Uh, and uh, it's, of course, by Paul here, uh, Diorlance, And the forward is by Chris Hunter, which is the founder of Bike EXIF. Did I say that right? Uh, is it XF I, or EXIF? I,
1: I, I say, I, you know what? It's just one of those weird acronyms like, is it GIF or GIF? <laughs> I, I call it Bike EXIF, and most Exif. people do. Yeah, Exif is the uh, data file on every photograph, actually. Oh, uh, yeah. So, okay. There's yeah. where that's from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go. Yeah. Uh, it's a photography term. And it's funny, uh, Chris, Bike Exif has become, I think, probably the number one motorcycle website in the world. And uh, it's about – he started it in 2007. He used to have a – he's Australian. He used to have a, a, a blog about bicycle fixies. And he contacted me in about 2007 and says, hey, I'm thinking about switching to kind of a a new custom motorcycle scene that was growing, like a completely different, non-Harley Davidson-based custom motorcycle scene that was much less sort of baroque and not chopper and much more cafe racer and scrambler and fun and young and not traditional and and I just thought that was fantastic. And I said, you know, a daily blog is a double-edged sword. You know, you'll get a lot of eyeballs, but it's a ball and chain for daily content that's not always going to be spectacular. But he kept at it, and and now it's just phenomenal. So it's great that he was uh, returned the favor and wrote the introduction to Tun Up.
0: Very nice. Nice. Well, share with us a story that instigated this passion you have for motorcycles. You talked about starting to ride back. Uh, when you're in high school, I believe you said, so you could go to night school, so you could get out of high school quicker and get on with your life. Um, is there a pivotal moment in your life when you knew that you were going to be a bike guy at Fay Racer?
1: Yeah, I think it would be when uh, my my friend Jim, who was the, the printer, he let me ride his 1960 BMW, a 500cc uh, flat twin. and I took it out. I was in the sunset district in san francisco and i took it out to the beach and rode it up around the great highway and ah, there was just something really lovely about this old motorcycle it was uh had a great feel uh it had a you could have a visceral relationship with it that was very pleasurable you know it was comfortable to ride it had a great sound it was smooth i liked the aesthetics. The court, sort of the uh, austere aesthetics of the BMW, and uh, it just set something off in me. You know, I, I I I joke that you know it infected me with the virus, and anybody who's a motorcycle fanatic knows exactly what I mean. Something triggers you, and you know you just it's something it's hard to shake. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, it's, I understand a hundred percent. And uh, when I got back into riding, uh, my bike I bought was a Ducati Monster. And I just loved, it had a bit of a cafe racer essence to it, I think. Uh, I didn't want a Harley. I wanted something a little more sporty. I liked the idea of Italian. And then I got really nuts and bought an MV Augusta F4, which every time I got off of, I went, what am I doing? I've got kids to (laughs) race. This is crazy. I think that bike rev to like 14,000 RPM or (laughs) higher. It was just nuts. But uh, it's I'm, a
1: gorgeous design, too. Oh, uh, yeah. I credit you for good taste. I'm, well, I'm friends with uh, Miguel Galuzzi, who designed oh. the monster. Oh, my gosh. Iconic, okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, actually did a profile of him for Psycho World, uh, I think it was two years ago, uh-huh. on the 25th anniversary of the monster. Fantastic design. Oh, it's and
0: beautiful. Yeah.
1: Pierre Turblanche designed the uh, MV F4 and uh, oh, gosh, yeah. fabulous, work of art. iconic, iconic design. You know? Yeah,
0: that bike ended up going. A friend of mine's wife bought it for him. He collects Italian bikes. He doesn't ride bikes. He just collects them, mostly old cafe racers and vintage bikes. But she loved that and she knew he loved it. So ever since I let go of it, it's been a piece of art in the entry of their very modern home. Uh, kind of hangs on a wall there. So kind of sad it's not on the road, but, you know, it's it's a work of art. So, uh, it's a work of art. Yeah, everything about it, even you take the fairings off, everything inside of it was a work of art. I mean, just. They didn't stop on the outside. It just yeah. got deeper and you deeper. Know,
1: I misspoke earlier. It was uh, Massimo Tamborini. Oh, who designed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, not Pierre Tabors. Yeah. Uh, and Tamborini, of course, was... Uh, I include a lot of Bimodas in my... Uh, oh, yeah. ...in Tuna book. The book spans to the present. It ends with electric cafe racers that are that were built just last year. I think Bimoda is a uh, almost an underrated company. I think what they did as a, a tiny little bespoke italian firm was was just phenomenal i mean the the level of craftsmanship they they put into their motorcycles was fabulous and Tamburini, of course was their principal designer i i have an exhibition up right now actually at the peterson museum in la NLA, Oh, uh, no called, kidding yeah it's called silver shotgun and it's about italian motorcycle design of the 70s i've actually contracted I have a nonprofit called the Motorcycle Arts Foundation, and we've contracted for the next five years to do all the motorcycle content at the Peterson. I have uh, the the iconic machine in the uh, exhibit is a 1978 Bimota SB2, which was their first uh, street legal motorcycle. And it's just wild. <laughs> it's, <laughs> no kidding. It's it's sideburns and flares, you know, and, and bell bottoms. You yeah. know, it's yeah. so 1970s extravagance. Anyway, it, it, that to me was the iconic design. So it's great that you had an F4 designed by the same fellow. Yeah,
0: yeah, fabulous. Well, let's talk about your first really special motorcycle. That first bike you got that you went, man, I've always wanted one of these. This is cool.
1: What was it? I don't think people really talk about... Um, You know, they talk about objects, but they rarely talk about motivations and the the changes that uh, acquiring something that you've wanted or is special can have on your psyche. So I've been through a series of bikes that I didn't think I could own or afford or I maybe didn't deserve. I don't know. Well, I think maybe we all think that, like, well, do I deserve a Bugatti Atlantic or even a Type 35? You know, am I the right caretaker for this machine? Uh, The first one I'd say was a a 1966 Velocet Thruxton, which is a, uh, Velocet was a tiny little family company in England. They handmade their motorcycles and uh, about a thousand of these Thruxton models, which are kind of a quintessential cafe racer. It was built as a production racer actually from 65 to 71. I had always wanted one. There was a green British racing green example at a collection in oakland which is its own story the fellow who owned this collection of 300 bikes it turned out he was a the largest manufacturer of amphetamines Uh (laughs) uh-oh privateer manufacturer i should say i was gonna say oh not companies make amphetamines and call it ritalin and adderall but he was a privateer (laughs) and uh, got caught and sold the collection and that's how i was able to buy my thruxton in 1989 and i still have it and oh you uh, still have it wow It's a keeper. Yeah. A a cold dead hands motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, beautiful bike. You know,
0: you you think about those bikes, very, I mean, kind of big, bulbous tank. Interesting seat pad, if I recall in the back, the way it kind of drooped down with your legs and stuff.
1: A racing uh, saddle that kept you from sliding off the back of the seat, you know, when you were crouched down.
0: Sure. Yeah. A lot of those had that kind of bump in the back, too, which. Uh, It was kind of a standard in that style, but uh, I think it's cool that you still have that bike uh, because so many people let those first ones go. I hear that from people uh, all the time here. Well, let me get into your head a little bit here, Paul. Uh, If you woke up tomorrow and you were a motorcycle, not what you want to be, but how you perceive yourself as a cafe racer, what would you be and why? (laughs)
1: Well, I just said it. (laughs) That was it, huh? Yeah. I think the reason we keep certain things or they become really em- ingrained in our, in our soul or our, yeah. you know, yeah. how we experience the world is, uh, some kind of relationship. You know, it's not this thing because I've had it for so long and I put so many tens of thousands of miles on it. It was my, my sole transportation at a, a certain stretch, wow. uh, in the, and let's say around 1990, 91. uh, I didn't have a car or anything. And, um, uh part you of know, you. I just it's I part just, of you at this point. It, it became part of me. Yeah. yeah. And and I would say it's I identify with it because it's it's quirky. Bell sets are very have very curious uh but very effective systems. Like their clutch is super narrow and inboard of the final drive sprocket which is unique mm-hmm. people pull their hair out over it if they don't understand it but it works incredibly well and they have a beautiful their their timing the gears in the timing chest are all helically cut and a very fine pitch and, and it looks like a watch inside and so there's a lot of intelligence that went into the design but it's also graceful and dynamic and the performance is amazing mellacette was the uh First motorcycle ever to do 100 miles an hour for 24 hours at the Montlary Speed Bowl in 1961. And uh, I joke that, you know, I was in my 20s. I was attempting to match that record piecemeal. Uh-huh. <laughs> on the streets. Yeah. yeah. Be careful <laughs> these many, days. Many hours at 100 miles an hour as I could. Nowadays, yeah. I I don't. No, no. <laughs> but, you uh, know,
0: it's hard. To, that's the challenge these days with riding. There's a lot of inattentive drivers out there. you got to be so careful. But uh, wow, nice bike. That's very cool. Well, we're entering what I call the last lap. I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some quick blips of that Thruxton throttle. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> so here we go. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your many successes over the
1: years? Uh, yeah, just consistency. Just keep doing yeah, it. Persistence a lot of A lot of people have asked me about uh how do I do this? How do I get into it? And I said, well, if you're asking me, you're not already doing it. <laughs> yeah, so you just, just got to stick it. with
0: it. It's how you do 1,500 podcast interviews over five years. Exactly. You just keep doing it, even as crazy as it sounds. How about if I could arrange for you to sit down and have a drink or a meal with anyone in the motorcycle industry, living or deceased? Who would it be?
1: I, I have actually thought about that. Of course, many people that I'd love to uh pick their brains. Uh George Bruff, who did Bruffs made Bruff Superior Motorcycles, although I reckon I wouldn't get a straight answer out of any question <laughs> <laughs> asked him because he was such a storyteller. Yeah. I'd actually I, I think talking with or Honda would be fascinating. Oh yeah. What a what a brilliant man. Probably as a generic I would say designers. I, mm. I I'm fascinated with designers and how they think. Yeah. and how they managed to make something successful. Because that's so difficult today. I'm watching the electric motorcycle industry struggle with a completely new design paradigm. And so talking with people about how do you make a design that appeals to millions Mm -hmm. uh, would be really interesting to me.
0: Yeah, fascinating. How about uh, the best motorcycle advice you've ever received?
1: (laughs) Ride within your limits.
0: Yes. Yeah, be careful out there. And you know, I was talking the other day with a guy He was giving me a ride, um, a lift driver, we're talking about mar- motorcycles, and he said, you know, I don't ride enough to feel competent, and I'm really worried about that. I said, yeah, you should, because um, if you only get on your bike, you know, a couple times a year, it's like jumping in a race car only a few times a year, not a good idea, you need to have seat time.
1: Another great quote uh, is, uh, motorcycling is a perishable skill. Oh, <laughs> you have to uh, you have to keep up your skills.
0: Yeah, uh, perish. There's an operative word there. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, that's a scary one.
0: How about a, a great resource out there uh, for people that are into motorcycles? Is there one you can throw at us?
1: You know, I mean, the web is an incredible resource, and you can get a lot of information out there. But uh, really... I think mentorship is a, is another thing. I think you really have to find someone who you relate to who can guide you. Let's say if you're, if you're talking about collecting or even just riding, you know, having someone you can talk to who can pass down advice like motorcycling is a perishable skill and ride within your limits and wear your gear. You know, we need, we need each other, uh, to, to hand down what we've learned.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Before. Yeah. And I'll remind our listeners, another great resource I would recommend, thevintagent.com. Uh, of course, got to plug plug ourselves here a little bit, Paul. Um, yeah, and let me spell that for you because it's unique. V-V-I-N-T-A-G-E-N-T, the V-I-N-T-A-G-E-N-T, thevintagent.com. If you love bikes, that is a place to go. Of course, Paul's blog, a wonderful thing to subscribe to. Now, obviously, I when I ask my guests this next question about a book they would recommend, I'm going to recommend on up by my good guest friend here, Paul. Is there another book, though, you might suggest people get their hands on that you've enjoyed reading?
1: Yeah, I can recommend, uh, Melissa Pearson's book. It's called the perfect vehicle and it's a series of essays and meditations on why motorcycles basically. Melissa's terrific. You know, I helped found a motorcycle film festival in New York, uh, a few years ago back in 2012. And she was a guest judge and got to know her through that. And she's great. And actually we're thinking about, uh, Rebooting the film festival, the, my Motorcycle Arts Foundation, is thinking about reviving it at the Peterson Museum. So oh, that
0: would be a perfect for place for it. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: in partnership with the museum would be great. Absolutely. And actually, speaking of the vintage, we, we host a new film every week, whether it's a short or a feature or something. We're dedicated to having, promoting motorcycle-related film on the website, and we've had everything from two-minute shorts to Easy Rider or yeah. other films like that. So
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure I put links to all these great resources on Paul's show notes page on the Cars yeah website. Just go to Carsia.com, type in Paul D'Alance, that's spelled a little a D, apostrophe, big O, R-L-E-A-N-S, and that page will pop right up with all these great links. And again, I remind you to go to com and subscribe there get his blog, you will enjoy it, I promise. Even if you're not a big bike person, you're going to find something fascinating there, I promise you. All right, we're up to the checkered flag here, and this last question can be a bit of a doozy, to use a car phrase. I'm going to buy you a very cool collector, not a car today, a motorcycle. Something very cool, fun, to park in your garage. I want you to ride it and enjoy it, though, so no garage queens here. You can't sell it to buy a bunch of other toys with, and if it was the only one really cool collector bike you have what would it be
1: <laughs> that's a great question i i've been lucky enough to own most of the bikes that i would consider sort of dream V1? bikes or yeah. top top 10 bikes yeah. um so i've ridden most of them and and uh one of those bikes was a 1925 rough superior ss100 i actually rode one across the country on the cannonball uh two years ago oh my gosh yeah. At the end of that ride, I realized, no, this is not <laughs> not <laughs> this the is one. Not that bike. Uh, I would probably say, actually, a Vincent Black Lightning. I've actually got one in my garage right now. It's not mine. I'm going to make a film with it. But um, talk about uh, a storied motorcycle.
0: What year was that? Uh, 1950. 50, okay.
1: uh, uh, Richard Thompson actually did a beautiful song called 1952 Vincent Black Lightning. You can find it uh, on YouTube his version or many others it's it's really terrific. So we're we're I'm working with a filmmaker to make a short film about this bike but I've ridden one up the glockner Pass in Austria. Oh my uh, gosh. I hope I'm there and what a fabulous compelling and historic machine. It had it ticked ticked all the boxes. Oh uh, my gosh, yeah. Marginal road legality but <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, nice choice that yes, yeah, sp- very very special bike. Um I'm going to do a little more history research on that. Google it, if they say, and uh, look into that a little more. What are the best ways people can follow along with you? I know I have mentioned your website, com. Are there other ways that people can follow you out there?
1: Sure, I have a pretty big Facebook page, uh, also just called The vintigent. Two words. Uh, my Instagram handle is The vintigent one word. I don't really do Twitter, but uh, I think if you follow those social media, you can find Pretty much what I'm up to, or what my team is up to. I have other people that contribute to those with film and with stories. And and I just wanted to say that um, we really focus on culture and people. And we're not a technical site per se. We we don't focus on oh here's the latest model or it's more about stories. And uh, that's what I find rich in the world of motorcycling is stories about people, what they did, what they are interested in. And I I often say that motorcycles are the MacGuffin. For the vintage hit there, they're the object that is the nominal subject, but really the subject is, is people and stories. Yeah. So I think anyone can relate to the content there.
0: Absolutely. You know, that's what I've discovered after 1,500 shows now here on Cars. Yeah, it really is the people. It's the machinery, the cars, the bikes that bring us all together and uh, form wonderful relationships. So, Paul, thanks for being so generous today with your time, your expertise, and for taking me on a great bike ride. Uh, I can feel the wind in my, I won't say my hair, I've got none left, but uh, in my face, (laughs) the bugs in my teeth, let's put it that way. Uh, This has been great. And I remind our listeners again, get your hands on this book. I'll put links to it. Hunt Up by Paul D'Orlans. It's a wonderful book. Paul, until you and I talk again, I'll see you out there on the road. Great chatting. You too. Hey, Cars Yow listeners, this is Mark Green. If you love the Cars Yow podcast, I have something new for you. I've teamed up with Keith Martin, a collector car market expert and the editor of Sports Car Market Magazine, to create the Buy, Sell, Hold podcast. Buy, Sell, Hold is the essence of collecting. Together, we take you on an educational ride into the collector car market, talking with industry experts, helping you navigate your collector car journey so you know when to buy, sell, hold. We talk with seasoned experts, who buy sell and hold investment vehicles and they'll share their insider secrets on how they make their buying decisions when it comes to making these important investments you'll find the buy sell hold podcast on the cars yeah website on the sports car market website and if you're a podcast app subscriber to cars yeah, buy sell hold will come right to your mobile device just like the cars yeah podcast automatically join keith martin and me on a great new venture on the buy sell hold podcast today